Volume One, Chapter Nine of Evelyn, or a Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Kelly Taylor, Chapter Nine. None knew nor how nor why, but he entwined himself perforce around the hearer's mind. Byron. From Catherine Bolton to Elizabeth Montague, December 13th. Ellen's unaccountable love of solitude is explained. Accident has transferred her well-guarded secret to my keeping, and I, for very safety's sake, forsooth, must commit it to yours. I was invited to dine en famille with the Merritts and Willards yesterday but this is an incident of so frequent occurrence that I hardly need to mention it. Just as we seated ourselves at table, Ellen, who had not made her appearance, sent word that we must not wait for her, as she had no appetite, and begged to be excused from coming down. Mrs. Willard, who informed me that Ellen had, as usual, been shut up in her chair all day, did not appear to be in the least concerned on her account. I, on the contrary, felt so uneasy that before the second course was served, I rose from the table, and in spite of a disconcerting look from Mr. Merritt, who cannot tolerate a breach of etiquette, made the best of my way to Ellen's chamber. I knocked twice, but no answer was returned. I tried the door. It was unlocked, and I entered, but not without alarm. Ellen was sitting with her arms folded upon the small table before her, and her head bowed over them. An open box of paints and a glass of discolored water stood near, and pencils, paint brushes, and several fanciful designs partly completed, were strewn around her. She quickly raised her head at my approach, as though prepared to resent the intrusion, and I saw that her eyes were swollen, and her cheeks moistened with unregarded tears. When her eyes met mine, she turned away and resumed her former disconsolate attitude. Ellen! "'My dear Ellen, what has happened?' said I, trying to take her hand. She shrank from my touch, and replied again without looking up, "'Nothing. I only desire to be left alone. I shall not prove very agreeable company.' "'Permit me to be the judge of that,' I returned. "'If you only banish me for my own sake, I may venture to say that you will best please me.' by allowing me to remain. But I prefer to be by myself, answered Ellen, rather peevishly, at the same time repressing a rising sob. I rose and replied, since my presence can no longer give you pleasure, I will not force my company upon you. But, dear Ellen, you do not know of how great a happiness you deprive me in making me feel that I have lost the power of soothing and advising and sometimes comforting you. I slowly retreated towards the door as though about to retire, 
but Ellen was roused. She was willing to suffer herself, but her kind heart would not inflict pain. Stay, stay, she exclaimed, weeping, and stretching out her hand towards me. I needed no second invitation, and, tenderly grasping her offered hand, held it between both of mine as I seated myself beside her. Now, Ellen, tell me frankly, what is the matter with you? I, I hardly know. I believe I've got the blues. I often have them. The blues, the blue devils, I ejaculated, almost laughing. Have you forgotten the good text, resist the devil and he will flee you? Now the imps which flee soonest through stout resistance are these same blue imps. Receive or encourage them for a moment, and they will assault you periodically until they have gained perfect mastery over your spirit. You are half jesting with me, answered Ellen, seriously, but mine is no fancied, no ideal distress. You mistake me. I think the distresses of the mind are as real to the mind as ailments of the body are to both body and mind. But you should not give way to either. Even physical sufferings may sometimes be combated by resistance, and often alleviated by a mental remedy. Dear Miss Catherine, you do not know how horrible is the sensation which overpowers me, and which people call the blues. When the feeling comes over me, I am perfectly miserable without a cause, or else I seek out causes of misery which I had forgotten. I am discontented with everybody and everything. Everything seems flat, stale, and unprofitable. Everybody appears stupid and lifeless, or flippant and heartless. I take no interest in the occupations that most delighted me before. I see no beauty in the objects I most admired. My own feelings throw a sad coloring over all creation, and everything looks harsh and cold and unalluring. Ah, oh, you do not know how dreadful a thing it is to be subject to the blues. Indeed, my sweet Ellen, I do know, for the disease is a very common one, and one which I have experienced and successfully combated. It arises partly from physical, from mental causes. By a strict attention to the laws of nature, and an avoidance of their most trivial infringement, the physical causes will be removed. The mental can even more readily be counteracted by any occupation which interests the mind. But when the fit is upon me, occupation has no charm. Still, you must force yourself to be employed, and through this very self-control your mind will, little by little, regain its usual healthy tone. An interesting book, especially one of elevated character, is often an antidote to the blues. But you find yourself a sure, and I may say infallible cure, by devoting yourself to the promotion of another's happiness, or in projecting some mode of benefiting others. If I were a physician, and one that professed to minister to the mind diseased, I should write down in my notebook, Love to thy neighbor, a specific, 
for the blues. But I look upon neighborly love as a mere phantom if it brings forth no fruits, which fruits are benefits conferred. But if I can find no occupation, if I have no book at hand, and if I cannot amuse or benefit anybody, what am I to do? Seek for what you have not, and if that search is useless, or you have not spirit to pursue it, throw yourself into society with a view of cultivating your social feelings, and thus changing and enlivening the sluggish current of your ideas. Why, I have found you more specifics than an enterprising quack would need to make his fortune. But I should find it easier to swallow the nostrums of a quack than to take any of your medicines. You spoke of society. I am totally unfit for social intercourse. When I am summoned to see a few intimate friends, a cold chill creeps over me. I grow tremulous and nervous and lose all my confidence. As soon as I enter the presence of my visitors, I become so ill at ease that my very seat feels uncomfortable. I do not know what to do with my hands. I cannot sufficiently collect my ideas to suggest any topic of conversation, nor can I command my voice, which invariably sounds harsh and husky. And can you not account for this? Are these sensation consequence upon too constant remembrance of self? If you would not fancy that others were thinking about you, if you would but realize that you were unnoticed, as we all of us often are, if, in short, you would forget yourself, this timidity would vanish. As for your professed inability to converse, the inability often lies in the absence of the endeavor. Conversation is an art capable of the highest culture, and one the cultivation of which is essential to all classes of society. It is often a compliment to listen with that attention which shows that you appreciate what is said. But we have no right to draw continually from the stores of others without contributing from our own. A person who silently hears everything that is said around him without aiding or encouraging the speaker must either be selfish or ill-bred. I do not mean that a person in conversing should attempt to say smart things, for witticism are often ill-natured, and good humor is the charm of conversation. But how should I know, returned Ellen, that I was not tiring instead of entertaining my friends? If you suit your conversation to the capacities of those whom you address, and take the troubles to choose the subjects which interest them, avoiding all others, you will not easily fatigue your guest. One great art of conversation is to make others converse. The faculty, I think, is of a higher order than that of being able to converse well oneself, and often more useful, for many persons are better pleased by hearing themselves talk than by being talked to. As Lord Bruyere says, the most delicate pleasure is to please another. But you cannot do this while you remain a cold and silent listener. Ah, uh, Miss Catherine, 
if I was sure that I should never have the blues again, I would make a great effort to profit by your counsel. You will surely prevent yourself from having them if you remember that they are positively sinful, inasmuch as causeless melancholy is a species of ingratitude to heaven, and all ingratitude is sinful. But if I cannot help being melancholy, you might as well say, dear Ellen, that a man could not help stealing, and that therefore his robbery should be excused. But what are these little paintings scattered about the table, said I, unwilling to continue the subject upon which we had conversed sufficiently long for Ellen's good. I have been examining them for the last few minutes with curious eyes, cupids and bows, and hearts and darts and doves and roses. What do they all mean? There, now you have discovered my secret, exclaimed Ellen, and I suppose I may as well make a virtue of necessity and confess everything. After the conversation which took place between us in your room some weeks ago, do you remember it? I replied in the affirmative. After that conversation, continued Ellen, I determined that I would no longer be idle. We are poor, and I have often been wounded to the quick to think of the manner, but no matter that, you know what I mean. Well, I conceived the project of trying to make myself independent, that is, providing myself with the few necessaries of life without running in debt for them or availing myself of Evelyn's generosity. Then I longed to have a few shillings of my own, which I could bestow in charity if I pleased. I did not know what I could do, but determined to do something. One day, as I was walking along the street, reflecting on this subject, I read on a large sheet of paper, hung up in the window of the bookstore, painted valentines and Christmas note paper with original designs wanted. I always had a taste for sketching and coloring and had received some instruction in drawing. I wanted to enter the store but had not the courage and after some hesitating some minutes passed on. The next day I argued with myself until I gained resolution to walk into the shop and inquire what price would be given for the paintings. The bookseller requested to see some specimens of my skill before he employed me. I returned home, and the same afternoon carried him all my best performances. He turned them over rather coldly, as I thought, for I stood tremblingly watching him, and finally said that I might paint him half a dozen valentines with some original designs, and that he would pay me a shilling apiece, if he liked them. He furnished me with paper, and I went to work the very day. I found some difficulty in drawing the designs, and it was a week before the six valentines were completed, although I expected to execute them in a couple of days. With greater diffidence than ever, I conveyed them to the bookseller, but hardly had sufficient courage to submit my work to his inspection. Finally, I did so and, to my great surprise, he seemed pleased, and said that he would give me as much employment as I chose for a month to come at the same price. 
I have already made a couple of dollars in this manner, and I am sure that I never held silver in my hand which was so prized. The little sum seemed like a fortune, or the herald of one, and the simple dress which it purchased is worth all the others that I possess. The designs in your hand are some which I have lately commenced but could not finish, for I have already grown wearied of them, and my invention is at an ebb. Perhaps it is that which gave me the blues. But prithee, where are your blue devils now, Ellen? I asked significantly. A good and loving spirit has exercised them, she answered, throwing herself in my arms. Ah, Elizabeth, wealth, homage, even love, could not have purchased me the exquisite joy of that moment. May one venture into the council chamber, said a voice at the half-open door, and without waiting for a lie, Evelyn glided into the room. After taking the first few steps, she stopped and surveyed us with mingled archness and affection, exclaiming, what a tableau ellen there looks like the fair penitent obtaining absolution for her first sin and you carissima you only lack a cowl and a monk's robe to be mistaken for a saintly confessor a spiritual adviser and ghostly comforter excellent you have given me an idea why can't we not amuse some of our friends with a tableau vivant on christmas eve that would be so delightful you must all help i shall press everybody into service what a charming idea come come down and we'll arrange our plans i ran away just as they were serving dessert walter began to look wrathy at my flight but i left him in good hands mamma will force him to accept the olive branch before i return come come follow me we can discuss the dessert and the tableau together evelyn flew downstairs and in a few moments ellen and i joined her in the dining-room ellen's cheerfulness was perfectly restored indeed she was much livelier than usual and at every sprightly word she uttered a small but harmonious voice within me the voice of an approving conscience whispered thou hast done this hast thou not cause to rejoice Evelyn immediately introduced the subject of the tableau, and without much difficulty obtained her husband's permission to conduct them as she pleased. They all, even Ellen, seemed to enter with more spirit into her projects than myself. I have observed of late a marked change in our lovely Evelyn's character. It seems impossible for her to exit except under the influence of excitement this excitement she continually creates for herself her mind is constantly nourished with this high seasoned and stimulating food she is even more wildly gay than ever even more restless and far more variable for at times she sinks into fits of moodiness and her usually beaming face wears an expression of absolute wretchedness to fly from this fancied or real but at all events merely momentary misery she seeks the most engrossing species of amusement and yields herself up to the exhilarating delight of the moment without remembering the reaction which invariably ensues 
My mind is filled with indefinable forebodings as I watch her, for I have commenced to doubt the reality of her felicity. Her joyousness resembles the sunbeams that sparkle on the surface of the waters, but not the pure and golden vein that glides beneath its bosom. Yet why should she not be happy? She is in the first bloom of youth, surpassingly beautiful. She has not a wish ungratified, and, last and best of all, she is beloved, and the faces about her reflect and multiply her smiles. When shall she find happiness, if not now? Where, in this life, if not here, in the bosom of her idolizing family? It was positively decided that on Christmas Eve a series of tableaux should be represented, and that all Evelyn's friends should lend her their assistance. Among those who were to take part in the representation, she mentioned Amy Ewell, Laura Hilson, and Colonel Damro. The latter has become a constant visitor at Mr. Merritt's, and is looked upon quite as a friend of the family. It is impossible not to like him, while we like what is agreeable and engaging. Yet I can hardly say that reasons sanction the approval which our hearts involuntarily yield. He is evidently a sensualist, although highly intellectual. This at first blush will seem like a contradiction, but not so much when you remember that to be intellectual does not imply to be spiritual. Sensual and spiritual he could not be. But to be at once intellectual and sensual is not incompatible. I never heard Evelyn mention his name except in the most casual manner, and yet I have repeatedly remarked that she distinguishes his ring from that of any other person, and that the rich bloom deepens on her cheek, and a soft lust eyes as his step approaches. She thinks of him, then, thinks of him perhaps too frequently, and his coming awakens some decided emotion, either of pain or pleasure. I do not like unspoken thoughts. When the heart is on the lips, its impulses not to be feared, the instant that its holy recesses are involuntarily veiled, some feeling has penetrated them which prudence or modesty forbids to be revealed. Do not for a moment imagine that Colonel Damoreau prays particular or unwarrantable attentions to Evelyn. I believe him to be a man of honour, and there is an evident purity and trustfulness about Evelyn which only a fiend could assail. He never particularly singles her out, but is equally agreeable to everybody present, he has but one habit with which I am disposed to find fault. He sometimes speaks both to Evelyn and Ellen by turns in that dangerously melodious sotto voce, which renders his words inaudible to all but the one for whose ears they are intended. At such times his expressive eyes are filled with a softness almost voluptuous, and I feel that that tone and look exert an influence inexplicable, and it may be pernicious as powerful. I have a great dread of those whispers scarcely heard and murmurs breathed against a lady's ear. 
We have not been troubled with Richard's visits as of late, and this is good fortune. I have no doubts we are indebted to the colonel. What means he has employed remains to be discovered, but he is certainly entitled to our hearty thanks. End of chapter 9